from Nashville, Tennessee. You are listening to On Background, presented by Civic Point. I'm Tom Lee. Before we get started, a word about our podcasts. At Civic Point, we work around public decisions and very public decision makers all the time. While few of us will be Speaker of the House or Governor or a CEO, we all watch what they do. And so we wondered, how do they do it? Where do they get their ideas, their vision, or sometimes just the guts to do something? What's in their background that makes them leaders today, and how might we learn from it? So each episode, we'll introduce you to some of Tennessee's most compelling decisions and decision makers. That's why we're here, and that's why we're glad you're here too. So let's go on background. He finished first in his class at the University of Tennessee Law School, served in the Tennessee legislature for two decades, father of three, son of a veteran, and he was the only legislator to stand before his colleagues in 2015 as a sponsor for Governor Bill Haslam's Insure Tennessee plan. Bill failed. Less than two days after a special legislative session to consider it had begun, Doug Overby represents two of the most historically Republican counties in East Tennessee, and not a few people thought he would be challenged the next year when his Republican primary came up. And he was. Outside groups spent tens of thousands of dollars buying ads and knocking doors. They said Overby had supported Obamacare, a powerful charge in a part of America that had long overwhelmingly rejected the president. And then Doug Overby won by 20 points. How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you. Um, We're glad to have that primary behind us. I would imagine so. I want to take you back to that moment in the special session when you're standing before your colleagues arguing for the bill to pass. Did you know as you were standing there talking to them what was going to happen? I realized uh, from the time the governor asked me if I would consider carrying his legislation that it would be an uphill battle. And um, I think at at that point in the um, uh, special health committee during the special session, I think we had a good idea of where the votes were. and uh, that it was uh, likely to fail, although uh, I tend to be the eternal optimist. Uh, my wife um, sort of d- calls me that uh, and not, not really complimentary, um, that I view the world through, through rose-colored glasses, but I am the eternal optimist. And there's all, to me, there is always hope that uh, you might say the right thing at the right time and turn somebody's heart or mind uh, to doing what's right. Ever see that happen when you were a lawyer? Ever win one you didn't think you were going to win? I think all of us that have practiced law have um, won cases we thought we wouldn't, and we've lost cases that we thought we would win. It it has uh, it has happened, and and that's happened in the legislature too. Um, carry pieces of legislation that. You thought this might be a uphill battle going into, and it turned out to 
things just fell fell the right way. So um, it's happened in both both realms of uh, of my endeavors. I think there's a universal experience of, regardless of profession, regardless of the work you do, regardless of your family, where you are approaching a matter that you have an idea going into it of its outcome, and yet you have to move through it somehow. And, and, and whether it's a speech or an argument or a, a task, you have to find a way, don't you, to move through that moment and, and deliver. Well, I, I, yes, I think you do. I think you, you have to, uh, to do what's expected of you. Uh, either by a client or your uh, constituency or the governor, if he's handed you um, a project that you need to to persevere, uh, have some confidence about it, and make the best uh, argument that you can. And uh, and as I said, hope that it uh, there is something said along the way that could change somebody's mind. And um, you know, I've seen it happen myself where. I'm feeling a certain way about a piece of uh, legislation and a constituent will call. And it may be just the right phone call at the right time that gives you a little different slant on the issue, a little more information, or uh, you hear directly how it might impact uh, somebody's life. You started that argument, and I went back and watched it again recently in an interesting way. Oftentimes, we who are trying to persuade others ask the person we're talking to to imagine themselves in somebody else's shoes and to try to get them to see the facts or the case that way. You didn't do that. You appealed to the members of that committee to go back into their own shoes. Do you remember how you started You'll you'll have to uh, to remind me. No, I don't. Uh, I don't recall. You started by saying, "Think back to what got you here. Why did you want to be in the legislature, in public service, in the first place?" And you said, "I bet it was because you wanted to make a difference." And I thought that was an interesting approach. I have tried it the other way. And I was told by a good friend, don't do that because you're asking people to do two things, really. You're asking them first to be empathetic, and then once empathetic, you're asking them to see something happening through the eyes of that individual. And they said, people aren't very empathetic all the time. So don't ask them to be somebody else. Ask them to be who they are. You you did that, and I wondered where that came from, that that felt when I saw it like he's done that in front of a jury before. <laughs> well, I, I can't really tell you, I guess, where, where it came from. Um, I, I do believe that folks that stand for election for public office uh, don't just want to make a difference. And I bet if I, you go back and look, I probably said you want to make a positive difference. You did. Everybody wants. Everybody makes a difference, whether you want to or not, in whatever you you seek to do. But I think if you're going to seek public office, you want to make a positive difference in the lives of the people uh, you represent and in your state. 
So where does that come from for you? Is there a is there a moment when you're a kid? Is there a thing that happens to you as you're at Carson Newman or at UT where that idea crystallizes for you that this optimism or hope comes up and says, this is the way I want to channel that in my life? Uh, well, not not to get uh, too deep, but I think my optimism um, for me um, comes from um, probably from from my parents who had to deal with a their son who was born uh they discovered after he was born to be a to be a blue baby um explain that blue baby uh blue baby uh, is uh, maybe it's an old term now um baby's born with with heart defects um when i was um 6 months old uh, my family found me laying i guess in the crib uh turning blue and the reason is the uh heart wasn't pumping enough blood to the lungs to get oxygenated to keep you pink, and um, uh, got rushed to the hospital. And um, uh, to make a long story short, I was eventually diagnosed with something uh, called Tetralogy of Fallot, which is four different uh, heart defects, the major one being a hole between the ventricles so that the blood goes straight from the right ventricle to the left ventricle and gets returned to the body without uh, being oxygenated by by the lungs. And um, my folks had to make the tough decision. Um, I had a bunch of surgeries uh, up until about the age of six um, when I finally gained enough weight or uh, enough size for them to do the major surgery, which was a repair of that hole uh, in the septum uh, between the ventricles. And as it's been related to me, uh, uh, there was a 50-50 chance, no better than a 50-50 chance of living through the surgery. And my folks had to make that tough decision. They had to be optimistic uh, that it would work. Um, and, to, and to an extent it did, except when we went back a year later for a checkup, uh, they found the patch that had been uh, sewn in during the um, procedure had blown off. And so the doctor said, we need to do it again. So I think when you've survived two operations, each with a 50-50 chance of living and have lived through it, uh, you do face each day optimistically because each day is a bonus. You weren't expected to be here, and you are here, and each day is a bonus. And that was, had to have been not just emotionally, but also financially an amazing reach for your parents. Your dad was a shift worker. Correct. Navy vet. Fortunately, um, dad had a, a job working shift work at uh, Tennessee Eastman uh, Kodak, and they had a major medical, um, which is a term, again, we don't hear much these days, but fortunately there was major medical, and he had an employer that understood. And Unlike today, uh, a baby born with Tetralogy of Fallot gets it repaired uh, while it's still a baby, uh, and they're in the hospital three or four days. Uh, when I went uh, for both repairs, we were in the hospital about six weeks, uh, several weeks getting ready for the procedure, and then several weeks after, and 
uh, mom and dad would live in a boarding house uh, close to the uh, Medical College of Virginia Hospital and um, uh, miss time off from work. Um, I just can't imagine the burden it must have been on them and the decision-making process. From my standpoint, I'm six years old. I have no reason to think anything other than this is going to be, this is going to turn out great. Uh, you know, people say, weren't you scared? No. No, because I think uh, when you're uh, that young and your parents don't convey fear, then you go into it uh, without without fear. You don't expect it to be anything than, other than a good outcome. In my household, we had certain rituals that we observed that let my sister and me know how our parents felt. I didn't know that at the time. I remember eating popcorn on the floor of the room where we had our television. And my dad and I would sit against the, the sofa. And we always sat on the same side of the bowl of popcorn. My left hand was in at his right. Glass of water watching you know, Carol Burnett, whatever it was at the time. And we did that so many times. It was a stabilizing thing that, that said, this is where I'll be if you need me. We're going to be in that same place all the time. And I, your parents must have had a way of conveying that to you, too, for you to have gone through that without fear. I think it was really a, a quiet uh, confidence, uh, plus they uh, were very uh, devout. Um, I mean, anytime the, the old saying, anytime the church doors were open, we were there, Sunday school, preaching, training union, preaching Wednesday night, prayer service, I mean, whenever it was open. And I think that uh, the support of uh, their families um, and their friends and, and dad's co-workers uh, probably sustained them very, 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 very well. In those days, Kingsport liked to talk about itself as the model city where you grew up. Mm -hmm. Was there must have been that sort of optimism in the town, too. I mean, it's a company town, not as much now as it once was, uh, but Eastman was the company in the best sense of the word. Some of the best public schools in the state, a symphony, professional ball teams. Right. That's an unusual mix for a town that size. Did you get that sense growing up that it was just people expected good things or was there something else in that community that you noticed I think there I think there really was um, uh, that spirit it it was a company town Eastman employed uh, I think at that time like 20,000 people they were very uh, employee oriented I mean um, uh, the employees could take their families to the plant cafeteria and uh, Eastman showed first-run movies uh, that employees could take their families to. Eastman had little leagues and softball leagues and tennis courts, and really your life kind of revolved around it. Plus, Eastman practically, uh, best I know, if any employee's child wanted a summer job, you could have a summer job at Eastman. I, I did my one summer at Eastman working uh, working shift work and filter products uh, uh, division. Um, 
which was uh, which was interesting and um, enough to send you to law school. I reconfirmed my commitment to get to get an education, but but you know that's the other thing. Part of um, uh, growing up was everybody. It was assumed you would go on to to college when you finished high school. I mean, it was just assumed, and I think from our high school, something like ninety five percent of the students went on to college. It wasn't something you really debated. It's just something that was assumed. Everybody I know from Kingsport from that time says that, that there was an assumption that you were moving forward and uh, and a reality too. People did. It wasn't just a dream you couldn't live up to. That was the reality <laughs> for folks. If you were ready to grab a hold of it, between the economic opportunity afforded families and um, the schools that the the city was and Eastman helped pay for, it was a reality, a, a genuine upward mobility. It yes, it was, and um, you know it was an eye opener for me to get to Carson Newman College and start talking to fellow students there, and they would say they were only the only person in their graduating class to go to college, or they were only one of 10 to go to college. And um, uh, that was a whole different mindset than, than we had coming up through the, um, through the city school system. When you get to law school, you finish first in your class. And since you've been in the legislature, there has been I don't think because of you, but while you've been there, a consistent decline in the number of lawyers in the legislature. You know, so much so that in, in 2011, when uh, you all passed Governor Haslam's uh, landmark tort reform bill, the House Majority Caucus had two lawyers in it. Mm -hmm. And it is common for people to say, oh, there's nothing but lawyers up there and not necessarily in a complimentary way. I wonder if, if you might reflect on, A, what it meant to you to do that well in law school because everybody who does that I've ever known was focused on it. It, was a, it, was, it wasn't just something you, you bumped into. And then the way that the role of the lawyer has changed in the time you've been serving in public life. Hmm. Because I guess that that's a little bit of a disappointment, maybe. That is a, that is a complex question. Let me take the, the easy part first, and maybe I am the only person you've met that, that did bump, bump into it. Um, that's a rare thing. Uh, I think I was I was focused. I got married between undergraduate school and 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 law school, and um, and was uh, was very focused about it. But I didn't go in intending to um, or thinking I would be would be excelling. I went in to pass and be able to pass the bar. And it was really only after the second year of law school that I <clears throat> somehow I can't remember found out I was third in my class. And um, at that point, I thought, hmm, nobody ever remembers who was third. I bet if I really buckle down, uh, I can do it. So it was really only that third year that I sort of had that as a goal to, um, 
to try to 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 move up. Um, um, so maybe I'm I'm the one who bumped who bumped into it. Uh, I I worked throughout law school. I clerk I started clerking with the firm I eventually joined in uh, the second quarter of uh, of law school and worked all the way through and put uh, a great deal of emphasis on them. Um, on that practical experience. I think your harder question is about being a lawyer and serving in the General Assembly. And um, I think one thing I've tried to do is not is not play play lawyer in the General Assembly uh, in the General Assembly, but play legislator. And I've really tried to rely a great deal upon. <clears throat> Uh, our legislative legal staff, who I think do a great job, uh, the attorney general's office and and his uh, staff, and uh, the governor's uh, legal counsel, and let me say that's through three administrations, not not just the current administration, but I've had the good fortune of serving through three administrate three different administrations. But I've really tried not to play lawyer, but to play and be legislator. Um, Describe the difference. Um, well, I think it starts, uh, I consider myself a, a fairly good draftsman of drafting documents, and uh, but I've, um, when it comes to legislation, I've taken the concept and the idea down to our legislative legal staff and asked them to do their job. I've tried not to, to play both law legislator and and lawyer and I've tried to look at pieces of legislation um, not necessarily with a lawyer's eye but with um, a constituent's eye a um, a person out in the community um, people often say how do you judge legislation and my answer has been I think about my parents uh, sitting around the kitchen table and how they would think about it. I try to put myself into their shoes. Um, Dad finished uh, high school and worked at the plant and went off to World War II and the Korean War. Mom didn't finish high school. Uh, she got her GED while I was in high school. Uh, but they sure brought a lot of common sense to to life. And neither one of them were politicians or office holders or uh, obviously uh, not lawyers, but I think they brought a lot of common sense to the table. And that's, I guess for me, uh, not that lawyers don't have common sense, but I try not to put that lawyer hat on, but to put the hat on of an uh, of a constituent or of my mom and dad and look at matters with more with an eye as to how this is going to affect people. You have been honored at least a couple of times for your work on behalf of persons with disabilities and mental illness. And you talk about that often as a passion. From where does that come? Well, that has been to, to me an interesting development in my legislative uh, career. Um, um, when I first ran for office, I think I talked about keeping taxes low and improving education. Um, 
job creation. I mean, all the things that most of us who run for office talk about. I don't know many folks that really go out and campaign on, uh, I want to help those with intellectual disabilities, or I want to fight for children who have hearing loss or, or whatever. Um, Now, I think, though, my own physical disabilities uh, or uh, heart condition as as a child has made me sensitive to those things. And as I sat on the health committee for eight years in the House and now uh, eight years in the Senate, um, I I just think it's natural to... um, um, be empathetic and sympathetic to those uh, with disabilities, and 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 I guess one thing that started uh, started me down that road is um, there was a lady in Knoxville who sent out um, an email. I was in the house, probably somewhere about two thousand. 2004, she sent out an email to all 132 members of the General Assembly asking why um, uh, we don't test newborn infants uh, for heart, heart conditions. And she will tell you this, that out of 132 emails she sent out, only one person responded, and that was me. Because I read it and I thought, this lady's got a great point. And we eventually were able to develop and pass a bill. It took three or four years to require uh, pulse oximetry testing so that parents wouldn't have to endure what my parents had to endure, uh, that they could have that test at the hospital rather than finding their baby, their newborn turning blue in the bassinet. And I think that was uh, probably leading, helping to lead that charge, uh, probably led to uh, working with those with um, intellectual disabilities, physical disabilities um, in the the General Assembly. You did a videotape last year in the midst of your campaign for the Knoxville News Sentinel, and I don't want to burst your bubble on this, but I, I looked at the YouTube viewing count, and I think my watching made it 22 views since you did that last year. <laughs> I don't know what they told you you were going to get, but there it is. Thousands. Yes. Well, that's right. It was going to drive public debate. And you said two things that I thought were interesting. You said that you are that you grew up a conservative in a household where conservatism wasn't just a political philosophy, it was a way of life. And you also said, there are times when government must act. And then you laid out some of those times, and you talked about persons with disabilities and veterans and neglected children. And I, I wonder if you could sort of put that political philosophy together for us. Well, uh, I did grow up in a in a conservative um, household. Uh, my my folks were uh, politically conservative, and um, I, I remember that one of the first times I asked them, "Well, 
somewhere awareness, probably the Kennedy, uh, John Kennedy, Richard Nixon, 1960 presidential election. I, I mean, I was aware of that and uh, watched the um, the debate, the debate on TV. And, um, you know, I remember asking, um, well, what's the difference between Republicans and Democrats? And I, I was told that uh, uh, Democrats like to tax and Republicans don't. And um, that was pretty much the uh, the answer I was given and um, and grew up with. Um, um, My daughter, who is 16, said to one of her friends in high school recently, "My parents are conservative." And and I said, "Well, sweetheart, what did you mean by that?" She said, "Oh, you just have rules." <laughs> well, um, but I've never thought of government as as the enemy. And. I used to give a, a, a talk on um, politics is not a bad word. Um, in fact, I, I, I try to tell student groups politics is a good word. Politics simply means how we get things done, how we work together to, to accomplish an end. And I still don't think politics is, is a bad word. I think it's been misused a lot. People say, oh, that's just politics. Well, that may be bad politics. But politics actually is a positive word of how we together get things done in society. And actually, the government is us. The government is, is, is everybody. And I wish more people participated in public life. I wish more people took the time to vote and to get engaged in issues. And there's probably not a day goes by or I'm I should say, a speaking engagement that I have that I don't encourage folks to get engaged, to register to vote, to vote, to contact their members of the legislature, and to express their opinion. I just think that's so very important. So to get back to, to your question, um, I, I've, I am conservative, but I've never thought of government as bad or, or the enemy. Government is how we organize, organize our society and, and live together. And government has a legitimate function. I mean, our Constitution has a purpose and, and a function in organizing um, how we live together in the United States of America. So um, I think government does have a role to play. Now, does it has the federal government at times gone overboard in regulation and red tape? Yeah, probably it has. Any human institution is going to make make mistakes. And um, I remember hearing a, a talk one time about how the pendulum swings and the polit uh, the political pendulum does swing, and it it goes back and forth from liberal to conservative and. Uh, you give it enough time, it's gonna. That pendulum is gonna swing, uh, swing back. Um, but I was talking with a group um, last evening about. Uh, it came up this same point about uh, uh, entrepreneurialism and the aggregation and deployment of of capital. And <clears throat> you know, the question came up about what is. I was asked, what's the government's role? And my answer was, generally, government just ought to stay out of the way and let 
entrepreneurs be entrepreneurial and let capitalism work. And I, I believe capitalism uh, does work. But I said there, there also can be a time like there was in 2009 when entrepreneurs didn't have any access to capital amongst the traditional outlets. Banks weren't lending. We were in the midst of a recession. And here in the state of Tennessee, we did pass a program called 10 Invesco that created a pool of capital that kept new and startup businesses from going to Silicon Valley or to Research Triangle Park and kept them right here in Tennessee. And I posed the question, should we do it again? I, I don't know, but it, it was the right thing to do at that point in time uh, to give entrepreneurs access to capital. There is on your church's website a statement that says at St. Andrews, we view faith as a way of life and as a matter of practice rather than of doctrine. And I wonder if that isn't a very good description of Doug Overby's approach to public service. Well, I had uh, I had never thought about. Uh, I, I don't know that I've even read that on the on the church's website, uh, but I have been very engaged in the life of not only my parish, the parish Kay and I attend, but in the uh, diocese of East Tennessee, and have enjoyed and got gotten a lot out of uh, uh, working uh, uh, through the church. Uh, it means has meant uh, a great deal to me. Um, I think one thing I I try to keep in mind is part of the baptismal covenant is uh, we recite together that part of our faith is to respect the dignity of every human being, and I think that's important to treat every human being with respect, kindness, and compassion. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Enjoyed it. From Civic Point in Nashville, Tennessee, you've been listening to On Background. I'm Tom Lee, your host and producer. Barry Richards is our editor and engineer. Our theme is by Josh Kramer. Civic Point is the government relations affiliate of Frost Brown Todd, one of America's 150 largest law firms with 12 offices in eight states, including Nashville. Nashville.